graduation season. I don't know if you guys have been to any, anybody attended any graduations, people you know that have been graduating? Some back here. I know that entire row there. What's up, Blevins family? Good to see you guys. But graduation is an exciting time. And during graduation, you hear a lot of stuff about dreams, uh, whether it's from the valedictorian speech or it's from a Hallmark card where it might say, don't give up on your dreams, pursue your dreams, may all your dreams come true. And the assumption with all that is that everybody has a dream. Everybody's dreaming for something. So it might not always be as clear as when you're in elementary school and they say, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you're just like, astronaut, duh, like fireman, whatever, right? What, for you guys, just as we get rolling tonight, participation moment, what was something when you were young, clear vision, dream for your life? It might not even, it might have happened, it might not have, where like I was going to go to the moon, whatever. You were just sure of it as a kid. Amanda, wanted to be a missionary. You going on mission trips since? That's all. Yeah, a lot. Wayne. Professional football player. Man, we'll get a flag league going. We'll all injure ourselves, right? <laughs> Pull a bunch of muscles. Alan. Child psychologist. Cool. Um, vet. I saw hands over here. Anybody else? I know for myself. Sorry, Steph. I don't want to diss my wife. A ballerina. Okay. I know for myself, when I was in middle school, high school, I was convinced I was going to illustrate comic books for Marvel because um, I was, in my mind, good at it. And at that time, they were thriving. Jim Lee was making like seven figures to draw comic books. I was like, that would be the life to just go draw, make all that money. And then Marvel went bankrupt. Believe it or not, they're making all this money from movies now, but they went bankrupt when I was in, like, I think high school, early high school. And I was like, well, maybe that won't be the path I take. So my life went different directions. But sometimes, you know, our vision is crystal clear. I know me, I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to go to the moon. That would be so cool, right, watching all these space movies. Sometimes it's crystal clear. Sometimes as your life develops, the dream develops. It changes. It shifts. Sometimes you have new dreams. But all throughout life, hopefully, we're dreaming. Hopefully, we've got a vision for the next step. But there might be seasons where it's kind of blurry, kind of fuzzy what the next step's going to be, kind of hard to articulate. You're not exactly Martin Luther King Jr. on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial explaining your dream for thousands to hear. But, you know, I was reading about that speech this week, and I believe it speaks to every one of us who's a dreamer. This I have a dream speech. What's become known as the I have a dream speech. You know, 24 hours before his speech, Martin Luther King Jr. was still up in the air about what to say, so he asked his aides for his advice on the next day's speech, and one of his aides who was named Wyatt Walker told him, hey, don't use that line about I have a dream. He said, it's trite, it's cliche. Basically, Martin Luther King had been sharing, like, I have this dream, this is my dream. He's like, basically saying, it's played out. Like, we've heard that enough. Nobody needs to hear that again, and after getting a, a wide array of suggestions about what should be in his speech, what shouldn't be in his speech. Martin Luther King finally went upstairs, and his words were, I'm going upstairs to my room to counsel with my Lord. I'll see you all tomorrow. So that was a big, long day event the next day where multiple people were speaking, musicians were performing, and finally, towards the end, he got up to speak. And according to one historian's account of the speech the next day, it says, King was winding up what would have been a well-received, but by his standards, fairly unremarkable oration. Go back to Mississippi, he said. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Then behind him, his friend, singer Mahalia Jackson, cried out, tell them about the dream, Martin. And he kept talking. He said, go back to the slums and the ghettos of the northern cities, knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. 
And then Jackson shouted again, tell them about the dream. So King went on, let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you, my friends. But then he grabbed the podium, set it and his text to the left. was filled a pause more pregnant and just went in. Talked about the dream. The historian says a smattering of applause filled a pause more pregnant than most. And Martin Luther King said, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. This aide, his advisor Walker, turned to the person next to him and said, all words you can't say from the pulpit that rhymes with spit. He's using the dream. He's going in, he's sharing the dream. And over 50 years later, we still can recite that dream. We, I had to recite it in school. I had to memorize that speech. Just the back end where he says, I have a dream. And he goes in where he actually set his notes that he had prepared aside and started to share about his dream. And his dream inspired many, inspired so many. Again, 50 years later, we quote it during protests in Tiananmen Square, China. Some protesters held up posters of Martin Luther King Jr. that said, I have a dream on it. On a wall that Israel has built around parts of the West Bank, someone has written, I have a dream this is not part of it. The phrase, I have a dream, has been spotted everywhere as random as a train in Budapest to walls with murals in suburban Sydney, Australia. It's a famous speech. But as those that have scrawled those words in all those different situations have realized, as those who sat outside the steps of the Lincoln Memorial listened to Martin Luther King preach about civil rights realized, and as Martin Luther King himself would come to realize, already had realized, this quote by John Maxwell says, the dream is free. The journey is not. John Maxwell is an author, pastor, preacher, speaker, leadership guru. He says, the dream is free. The journey is not. Maybe you say it's all well and dandy that he's a leadership guru, but speak for yourself. I don't really have, again, a clear dream for my life right now. Um, If there is a dream for me, I'd like to know it. But even if you don't have a dream for yourself in this moment, I got good news for you, and that's that God has a dream for you. God has lots of dreams for you. He created you. It says in Psalm 139, 16, that all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He dreamed up these works in advance for us to do. And then the best part is if you keep reading in Ephesians, you get to Ephesians 3.20. It says that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. And you know, one thing I've found out in my life is I don't want a Justin-sized dream because that's too small. It's usually self-focused, self-absorbed. I want a God-sized dream. And you know, I, I spent 21 years of my life pursuing my own dreams. I went off to college like Mike's about to go off to college, not rooted in the church, not rooted in my faith, and it spiraled downhill. And at 21, I went to a church service, gave my life to Christ, and I was justified in a moment, covered in the blood of Christ, made right before God in a moment. I learned quickly that sanctification, working my life out so that I'd be more like Jesus, being made holy, it takes time. It's a journey, something I realized quickly. And sometimes along the journey, God will drop new dreams. When I was 21 and I got saved, ministry was not on my radar. Pastoring a church, furthest thing from my radar. But at 31, 10 years later, here I am. You know, God's got dreams that are bigger than maybe what you're even holding on to right now. He wants to give us new dreams, new vision for life. You look at the Israelites going into the promised land. You got this guy, Caleb, in a later season in life, probably in his 80s, looking at this mountain with these giants. on. He's like, I'm going to take that mountain. That's my dream. That's my vision right now. God has plans. He has purposes. 
destinies and dreams for your life. Maybe they've been revealed. Maybe they're yet to be revealed. But with every dream, there's a journey. So tonight I just want to talk about how we walk out our God-sized dreams, God-glorifying dreams, because that's the bottom line. You know, my dream for myself as a young kid was be a comic book artist, make a bunch of money, and spend it well, right? My dream now as a pastor is to build the kingdom of Jesus Christ and to see him glorified. His dreams are bigger. His dreams are better. With God, there's always more, and his more is always better. That's a Pastor Fredism. Podcast him later tonight, City Life VA. We got three campuses, if you didn't know. One church, three campuses. That's a rabbit trail. But we're going to look at the life of Joseph tonight. The life of Joseph, which is about Genesis 37 through Genesis 50, where we'll be at. And if you're familiar with the story of Joseph, if you're familiar with your flannel board Bible stories, if you're familiar with Technicolor dream coats, then you know that at the beginning of his story, he's presented with this, this coat, this garment from his father. And for, for many years, and as kids, you know, we always talk about it as a coat of many colors, much like this shirt, many colors in it. But bad news for anybody who spent labored hours making a costume for Joseph. Scholars have pretty much thrown that out, that that word even means that in Hebrew. It most likely means a long-sleeved or long cloak or garment, full-length, full-length sleeves. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> That's indicative of not just favor, it's indicative of status. A coat like that with long sleeves that was long wouldn't be somebody who's serving, wouldn't be somebody who's, who's laboring, but somebody who's managing. So you see Joseph's father saying, not only are you favored, you know, there's management in your future, right? And it's telling that the dream he has, the verses immediately after this are about ruling, he has this dream where they're all out in the field harvesting and his tool stands upright and all his brothers bow down to his. He has this dream where there's 11 stars. He's got 11 brothers and these 11 stars and the sun and the moon all bow down to him. You realize that God had a big dream for Joseph. But it didn't mean that because he had a big dream for Joseph that he had a perfect family. Joseph's own brothers tried to kill him. That's about as dysfunctional as it gets. It also didn't mean that he had perfect circumstances. As we're going to see, he spends well over a decade in slavery, in prison, going through it. And again, if you're familiar with the flannel board history, then you know his dream seems stolen again and again. See, the dream was free for Joseph, but the journey wasn't. Getting there wasn't. He went through a whole lot. He went through lessons. And, and, and the lesson, that, lesson number one that we need to uh, take note of tonight is that God is always preparing you for what he has prepared for you. In every season, in the ups and downs, he's preparing you for what he has prepared for you. I think in a lot of seasons, I used to think, man, God, get me out of this. That was my prayer. When God wanted my prayer to be, God, what can I get out of this? What do you want to sow into my life down the road. I look back on my life now, pastoring just the past decade since when I was 21, all the things that I went through were preparing me for this moment because God is so faithful. As you know, at every stage, the highs and the lows, God was preparing Joseph for the dream he gave him, ruling and administrating from this lofty position, but not just his, his brothers, not just his family, but from one of the superpowers of that time in Egypt. So I can guarantee you, no matter what your dream no matter what your vision, you'll have seasons. Ups and downs, twists and turns, navigating those seasons, sticking to the journey will mean everything in getting to the dream that God has for you, that God-ordained, God-glorifying dream. 
And I want to look at three lessons in Joseph's journey as we begin to dig into the word toward God's dream and what we can adopt that he learned. Because how many of you guys know the Bible has a lot of screwed up stuff in it? We don't have to screw up in the same ways because it teaches us what to do and not to do. I heard somebody say experience is, is the teacher of fools, but now it's a little strong, but there are lessons in the Bible that we can learn from, especially in Joseph's life. The first lesson for Joseph is the pit, and it's a lesson in perspective. Genesis 37, again, we're going to be wandering from about Genesis 37 to Genesis 50 if you've got your Bible. But in Genesis 37, verses 19 through 20, it says, so Jesus, Jesus, wow, I'm a preacher, I like those names in. Joseph, he's a few more pages to the right, but Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer. They said to each other, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, that ornate robe that he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. So for the first moment in Joseph's life, he's got somebody snatching his garment from him right off his back, the coat that his father had given them and throwing him into this cistern. And for the first time, but the first of many times, it looks like God's dream has been snatched from him. That God's dream had been taken from him. And now, what was his perspective going to be in that moment? He's left for dead in this pit by his brothers. And he learned a lesson in perspective. Because in that pit, the only place he could look for help was up. To look up. So where in his life was he going to look for help? Where is he going to look for hope? Up to his father in heaven. That's where he's going to find his hope. And, you know, sometimes, again, I think God is less interested in fixing the problems than he is about fixing our perspective. That God's a lot less interested in fixing the problem than he is our perspective. Because your perspective can either propel you or it can cripple you in life. Joseph was forced to look up. He had to look up. He's at the bottom of this pit. He's not getting help from anywhere around him we got to look higher than what's broken, higher than what we're going through. We were talking about the goodness of God weeks ago, and we just talked about this idea that the horizontal, uh, the horizontal timeline of your life is going to be marked with many seasons, but a vertical focus on God in any season will help you at the mark in every season. Something like that. Sounds something like that. It's probably better than my first sermon. But in, the, in your life, there's going to be mountaintops. There's going to be pits and valleys. But a vertical focus on God in every season will allow you to hit the mark. Because as you're faithful, he's going to allow you to be fruitful. And we see that in Joseph's story. But here, he's in the bottom of this pit. you got to ask this question. Do you believe God is in control even when nothing is going your way? When you're having the worst day of your life, I don't think any of us are going to have a day this bad, hopefully, in the name of Jesus. The worst day of his life is, is God still in control? Does God still love me? Has God changed? And I think sometimes we get the idea in our head that the norm for the Christian walk is going to be ideal that par for the course will be minimal problems. Things won't get in the way of our health, our happiness. If God loves us, then that should be our walk, right? But how many of you guys like roller coasters? How many of you guys do not like roller coasters? See, I used to like roller coasters. How many of you guys get a headache two minutes into any roller coaster? I used to love roller coasters. They were like my favorite thing in the world. And then somewhere on my journey past 30, I'm on there for two minutes, I get off. Head is throbbing, so... My days with roller coasters might be done. But what's interesting about roller coasters 
is on the same coaster, sometimes sitting right next to each other, is you can have somebody who is filled with joy and exhilaration, and right next to them is somebody who is shaking and quaking with fear. I've got some pictures as an example. The first one, this guy and his girlfriend. <laughs> the second one, this older sister or mom with, with a kid. Where's he at? There he is. <laughs> Denise and Wayne, you have a great one of you in landing. I don't know what, what ride was that. Yes. Post that back on Facebook. Share that with all of us. You can go to their page later. But then one last one. In the front, terrified. In the back, joy. <laughs> We're going down. But on the same roller coaster, you can have exhilaration in one seat, fear in the other. Now, what that fear is rooted in is the fact that you don't know what's around that corner and you're not in control. But you know what that exhilaration is rooted in? The fact that you don't know what's around that corner and you're not in control. But you know, when you begin to trust, all right, these straps are straight. I'm not going to die. This roller coaster has been going for years. Nobody's died, hopefully, in most cases, right? The, I can trust the track. I can trust the car. Then you can graduate from fear to exhilaration. And in life, when you can learn to trust God, no matter what dip or turn you on, you can graduate from fear to a life of faith. You know, sometimes, again, I think we think a life of faith is just as much peace as you could ever walk in. But a lot of times, the walk of faith is a thrill ride as you hold on and trust in God to get you from point A to point B. Do you trust God? I don't think many of us will suffer worse than Joseph did at the hand of his brothers at the bottom of that pit in our roller coaster of life. But there was one guy, Victor Frankel, who might qualify. He's a man who spent a, a long time in concentration, tramp, concentration camps in his life. He wrote an account. It was a, a book. And in that book, there's this quote that he says, everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. To be able to say, you know what, these are my circumstances, but this is what's going to be my, my focus. This is what's going to be my perspective. This is what's going to be my attitude. You can't control your circumstances, unfortunately, right? But believe it or not, you can choose your attitude. You can. That whole track, that equation underneath, if you were here last week, then you recognize it because we talked last week about how our faith, our perspective in life, it's tied to our feelings. Feelings are good. Emotions are good. They're to enhance life. God gives them to us, but they shouldn't, they shouldn't lead us. It shouldn't be the, the locomotive. Your feelings should be the caboose, right? We should be focused on facts. Our faith should be fueled by facts about who God is, about what he's done in our life, about who we are in him. So how on earth could Viktor Frankl, probably the deepest pit when you look at human history, keep a, a positive attitude? Because he didn't focus on what was temporal around him circumstance. He focused on who God was. He focused on what's eternal. He looked up because what's around us comes and goes, but God never changes. You know, we talked last week about worship at length. We talked about how worship shifts our focus, shifts our attitude. And how does that tie into to Joseph here in the pit? Well, all his brothers, right, they're planning on killing him. He's at the bottom of this pit, and one brother says, hey, let's not kill him. Let's actually pull him out. And what was that brother's name? It was Judah. Judah means worship. Judah means praise. And when you find yourself stuck on the bottom of a pit or in the pits, as my mom used to say, worship your way out. Shift your focus and let that determine your feelings. Let your praise determine your perspective. See, Joseph's first lesson was a lesson in perspective. And it serves you in the long run. 
Because like on that roller coaster, you don't need to worry about what's around that corner because you know God's in control. You don't need to know the why or the how because you know God is sovereign, God loves you, and he's at work. Again, the stuff around us is temporal, but God, who he is, same yesterday, today, and forever. It's eternal. That will get you through every season between now and what God has for you. And then also God weaves providence into our problems. You see it again and again in Joseph's story. I'm going to point it out again later. But as he's betrayed by his brothers, they're thinking about killing him. At that moment, a caravan of traders comes from Egypt, and they're like, oh, here's a plan B we could do. We could just sell them into slavery. And that's exactly what they do. And it leads to lesson number two in Joseph's life when he becomes a servant, a slave at Potiphar's house. And it's a lesson in protection. This is Genesis 39, verses 1 through 4. Genesis 39, 1 through 4. It says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. So Joseph, he makes it out of this pit, and he's sold into slavery, which seems like a disparity in the dream, inconsistent with the dream he had. But God seems, sends prosperity, even in seeming disparity, and his favor followed him, even into this role serving at Potiphar's house. God was with Joseph, and he prospered, and no doubt he got another coat, which I'm going to put on. It's how Joseph could say at the end of his story in Genesis 41, 52, that God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. That God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. When you stay faithful in every season, God can make you fruitful in any season. Joseph stayed faithful in every season he was found in. And it's crazy how the favor of God just kept following him as we're going to continue to see. But he remembered to look up, and that meant he'd never give up. I mean, how many of us would have given up in that circumstance, sold into slavery? I'd be like, hey, <laughs> the dream is gone, the thrill is gone, I'm hopeless. But Joseph works diligently. People take notice. First Potiphar, right, who promotes him, realizes everything he does works out well because he's just got this wisdom that he operates with. So Potiphar takes notice, and then the person number two who takes notice is Potiphar's wife, who again and again, it says Joseph, it says Joseph was a good-looking guy, it says he was handsome, and she took notice of him. And she begged again and again that he would sleep with her. And he replies in Genesis 39, verses 8 through 9, where it says, but Joseph refused. Listen to what he says. He says, with me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Now, what's interesting is you read that, you begin to see some parallels between this story at the very end of Genesis and the one at the beginning of Genesis. Because you look at Adam, and he had a similar setup. He was entrusted with all of creation, entrusted with everything. There was no other part of creation that was greater than, than man. He created in God's image. And then God was holding one thing. From him. Don't eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And where Adam couldn't refuse himself, 
Joseph was able to say no. And you know, if I'm honest in my life, when I'm faced with temptation, temptations of the flesh, in my life, I've been Adam and I've been Joseph. And I've realized something in that journey. One is that life is complicated. It's going to have a lot of decisions. But sin will complicate your life in ways it should not be complicated. Right? God is going to complicate your life in ways it should be complicated. Sin will complicate your life in ways it shouldn't be complicated. Now, that idea, it, Mark Batterson's in a pit with a lion on a snowy day. One of the best books I've read in my walk. I highly recommend it. But he kind of breaks down that idea in different words. But life is complicated. Walking in God's dream for your life and the journey he has for you to get there is going to be complicated. It's often in those moments of complication where we grow. The dream is free, but the journey will have pits, potholes, speed bumps, and alike. That's reality. Think about the good books you've read. Think about the good movies you've seen. There's always some conflict, some complication that they overcome. You don't watch a whole lot of movies about somebody just sitting on their their couch the entire movie because that character never grows, that character never overcomes, and it's the same way in our life. Sometimes God will complicate our life in good ways so that we can grow because when we're in our comfort zone, chilling on the couch watching Netflix, I'm usually not growing unless I'm watching a really dope documentary and I'm just learning. But God will complicate your life in ways it should be complicated. Sin will complicate your life in ways it should not be complicated. And there's no quicker way to derail God's dream for you than disobedience. There's no quicker way to step into disobedience than to live with an unprotected heart. See, Joseph's brothers had tried to crush his dreams. So when that didn't work out, the enemy said, all right, here's an opportunity for him to just compromise his dreams. You look at verse 11 through 12 of chapter 39. It says, one day he went into the house to attend his duties, and none of the household servants were inside. So she, Potiphar's wife, caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. So again, she she says she's not Potiphar's wife. Steph snatching off the robe. This is like biblical streaking. Who knows what else he had on. But Joseph wouldn't compromise. He protected his heart. He went, because he protected his heart, he went from high position to prison. Because to save face, Potiphar's wife claimed that he assaulted her, and she held up this garment that she had just snatched off his back, this cloak, this coat that she had just grabbed from him and said, you know, this is my proof. Almost the same way that his brothers held up his his garment to his father and said, hey, this is proof that he's dead. It was proof of his identity, and his dreams were so deeply sewn into his identity. And again, it seemed like the dream God had for him, administration, high position, ruling, had been snatched from him. Seemed like a second time it had been taken from him. And was it fool me once, shame on you, fool me once, you want to go fool me again. That's how George Bush said it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. But so twice, that's a goat quote right there, greatest of, one of the greatest of all time. Fool me once, shame on you, fool me once, you ain't going to fool me again. Anyways, rabbit trail. It seemed again like somebody had snatched his dream. Seemed again like this is a, a, a great opportunity to throw in the towel because I've got every excuse people twice now, out of his control, had had seemingly robbed him of his dream. But God, even in this crazy circumstance that nobody would have asked for, was preparing Joseph for what he had prepared for Joseph. Again, let's be be practical. He's eventually going to be, spoiler alert, he's going to be the second in command 
in Egypt. Now, at this job, he's got one woman who wanted to sleep with him. But when you're in charge of an entire nation, handsome, good looking, if you can't handle one in that position, how many more? You know, God was trying to lead Joseph into his dream for him. Joseph had to show that he wouldn't be misled by every temptation. The lesson Joseph had to learn was one of protection. Protect your heart. Protect your dream. Protect the deposit that God had placed within him. You know, Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 12 through 14. Timothy was his younger apprentice. He was this younger companion who Paul had poured so much into. Dreams and destiny that, that had been sown into Timothy's life. And Paul says to him, from prison in 2 Timothy 1 verses 12 through 14. Paul says, this is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So Paul was able to write, from prison, with all faith, guard the deposit in every season. Protect your heart. An open door policy for your heart is just open season for complications, all the ones you shouldn't have. An open door season for your heart is is open season for all kinds of problems and derailing your destiny. And just think, Paul was an apostle, sowed into so many churches, so many leaders. And I would bet just even as we watch the news today, that there were leaders he knew of that had compromised, that hadn't protected their heart, and he'd seen their destinies and their dreams derailed. And he was saying to Timothy, hey, learn to guard the deposit. Learn the lesson of protection. Protect your heart. Protect the dream God's given you. Protect the deposit God's given you. You know, Joseph, because he protected the deposit and because of Potiphar's wife, was about to join Paul, not literally, because it was so many years earlier, but he was about to join the realm of prison. And it's finally, the third lesson we're going to talk about today happened in that prison. It's the lesson of compassion. Genesis 40, actually 39 and 40 is where you see the whole narrative. And again, in in chapter 39, Joseph's put in prison. And in what seems like a bigger disparity in the dream than even before, God again provides provision, again provides prosperity, again weaves providence even to what seems like a big problem. Even in the roller coaster of life, when broken people seem to break your dream, God is working all things for the good of those that have been called according to his purpose, as it says in Romans 8, 28. So trust two things, that God has a dream for you, and that he's working all things for good. And even in, his, in your problems, he can weave in providence. And you might say, where on earth is providence in this situation? Well, at that time, Joseph could have just been executed on the spot for, for assaulting Potiphar's wife could have killed him like that. Just said, all right, you're dead. You're a dead man. But maybe because he knew his wife's character, maybe because he knew Joseph's character, he compromised and said, all right, maybe to save face, and I'm just going to throw you in prison. And prison for Joseph, it, it wasn't a place of punishment as much as it was development. You know, when you come into a hard season, it's not always punishment. Rarely is it ever punishment. You know, God's not just in the in the a uh, business of character transformation where he's got to break us and redeem us and remold us. He's also just in the, in the business of character development where he's just trying to build in your life things that are going to prepare you for all the things he's prepared for you. And once again, favor follows Joseph. He's placed in charge of administration within the prison. When you read the story, you're like, are you kidding me? Again, 
Once again, Joseph is being trained as a leader, being trained as, as in administration, being trained to eventually rule under Pharaoh. And here's where the lesson comes in, because as a young lad, a teen, a brother, Joseph seemed to have a low emotional IQ. To, he had a, a, just a low ability to have compassion for others, empathy for others, see what somebody else was feeling and act on it out of touch with the feelings of others. He didn't carry himself with compassion. You think about it, sporting his look at me, I'm my dad's favorite son jacket. He tells his brothers, hey, I had these two different dreams. Y'all gonna bow to me. (laughs) Y'all gonna kiss the ring. (laughs) Without even thinking, man, this might upset them. Just Just a scotch, just a little bit. He never gave much thought to their feelings. He didn't really operate in compassion. You know, again, we talked last week, feelings are good. Emotions enhance life. Jesus experienced the whole gamut, all the feels, right, short for feelings. But the question we should ask ourselves is, are all the feels, are all the feelings my feelings, the ones I'm focused on, the things that drive me? Because if it is, then that's a problem. And let's be honest, if I'm in a valley, if I'm in the pits, my first impulse, find a couch, Find an iPad, find Netflix, find maybe even a book, but just be by myself. I'm an introvert. And there's seasons for that. Steph and I are about to go on vacation. I'm going to read a lot. I'm going to sleep a lot. Then I'm going to sleep some more. But when you're in a pit in life and you look up and you shift your perspective to God, God doesn't just lift you out. He points you out again. We've said it a bunch of times here at this campus. If your faith is solely inward focused, then it's out of focus. And you see for Joseph in Genesis 40, verses 5 through 8, it says, while they were in prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker each had a dream one night, and each dream had its own meaning. When Joseph saw them the next morning, he noticed that they both looked upset. Why do you look so worried today, he asked them. And they replied, we both had dreams last night, but no one can tell us what they mean. Interpreting dreams is God's business, Joseph replied. Go ahead and tell me your dreams. So Joseph on this day, notices the, the slightest facial expression, revealing anxiety in his prison mates, his cellmates. And he doesn't just take a mental note and be like, all right, I'll pray for him. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to remember to pray for them later. He shows compassion, acts in the moment, takes initiative, and gets involved. And he interprets their dreams. And we see in the story that Joseph, learning to not just worry about his own dreams, but worry about the dreams of others is what eventually unlocks God's dream for Joseph, that his interpreting one of these man's dreams is what gets him before Pharaoh to to interpret Pharaoh's dream. You see, the key to unlocking God's dream for him, the final step of preparation for all God had prepared for him was being sensitive and compassionate to people around him and helping them chase their dreams. You know, if you can quote scriptures, but you never share them, the enemy's cool with that. That's his dream for your life, where if he can't keep you from God, if that's already happened, then at least let's keep them from focusing on anybody around them. Let's keep them locked in a prison of self. But a life that's all about me, that's a small life. Those are small dreams. God is always preparing you for all that he has prepared for you. And the dream that he has for you is bigger than you. And the journey is going to be paved with many intersections where you intersect the lives of other people and are able to sow hope. You're able to sow dreams. You're able to, able to sow uh, just the love of God that you've experienced. God's dream for you will always intersect needs around you. You know, you're looking for your call. 
you're looking for like something innovative to do with your life, God will meet you where there's a need and it'll jump off from there. Trust that. You look at where Jesus was. He was with the lost. He was with those in need. You want to find Jesus? Find him there. But because he showed compassion and helped this man with his dream, that man would go on to recommend Joseph when Pharaoh needed an interpretation for a dream of his own. But I love that it didn't start with Pharaoh. It started with a prisoner. It started with a general nobody who he could have by all means ignored in prison. But because he was going to help the least, God was going to let him help the most. <laughs> we see Jesus say, hey, you know, if you want to be the leader of all, be the servant of all. And here in the Old Testament, you see that principle worked out, even in the kingdom of Egypt, even in a prison. And Joseph doesn't just interpret Pharaoh's dream. He lands, again, this position as prime minister, second only to Pharaoh, fulfillment of the dreams of his youth. He saves the lives of millions during this seven-year famine that went down in Egypt, leading and administrating all that he'd learned in the house of Potiphar and in the prisons of Egypt and what seemed like pits and, and downturns in his story. And his own family finds safe haven in Egypt during this seven-year family. And this family that was 100 when it moved there, about 100, became a nation of one million that Moses would later lead into the promised land. And it says in Genesis 41, 42, it says when Pharaoh gives him this new position that he took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments, garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. So I love the gold chain. That's biblical. Run DMC. They were onto something. Gold chain around the neck. I've got a big one at home. Don't worry, I won't wear it next week. But more importantly, God gives Joseph this new garment, this new coat. Not just one, but many. Not just kind of nice, but fine linens. At the end of his story, he's got exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond what he had at the beginning. And in terms of dreams, this dream God had for him was exceedingly and abundantly above and beyond what he probably would have dreamed for himself. And he had the garments to match. And I love to think of like what if history. Look back at history and think what if. There's a documentary called The Confederate States of America. Like what if the South had won the Civil War? There's a, a TV show about what if Hitler had lived. You know, what would happen in history if, if this had happened? And you think about Joseph. What if Joseph had given up in the pit? Where would he be? Where would he have ended up? If that would have broken his hope, broken his faith, and said, you know what, maybe God isn't good. Maybe God doesn't have my back. What would have happened if he gave up in the pit? What if Joseph gave in to temptation? What if he compromised? What if he showed that he couldn't be trusted? What if Joseph never gave attention to others, never had this lesson of compassion? What would he have done in a, in a seven-year famine as second-in-command in Egypt if he never learned compassion? You know, each lesson that he had to walk through, it came with a test. Potiphar's wife's advances, the cellmate's dreams. And Joseph could be trusted in this eventual position because he had been tested. We've talked about it before. We don't like tests, but we like things that are tested. Nobody enjoys the SATs. If you are here, weird. But we do enjoy, you know, cars that brakes are tested. Kids are tested before they get behind the wheel at 16 and start driving on the road with us. We don't like tests, but we like what's been tested. Joseph had been tested. And in every season and everything life threw at him, God was preparing Joseph for all he had prepared for him. So what test are you in tonight? We're all somewhere in a journey. God's got dreams, again, destinies, plans, purposes for every one of us. What lesson are we walking through? What problem are we in? What, what are we trying to overcome and what's God trying to teach us in that moment?
Maybe it's a lesson in perspective where we're just in, again, what my mom would call the pits, just in emotional doldrums, maybe depressed, maybe constantly stressed out. And maybe it's a, a shift in perspective from, hey, God, get me out of this to, hey, wait, God, what do you want me to get out of this? Maybe it's a, a, lesson, in, a lesson in protection. Maybe it's just feelings of conviction because you've had an open-door policy with your heart. You let anything and everything in. I did that for a decade of my life, and it did not end up well. And just the conviction I had when I went to that altar and gave my life to Christ and realizing there was a lesson in protection. If you're going to be trusted by God, if you're going to be led by God, are you going to be led astray by every temptation? An open-door policy for your heart is just open season for all the complications that sin would throw you away. Maybe lastly, though, it's just a, a simple lesson in compassion. So easy to live life point A to point B. You got a to-do list. And as you pass people during the day, every single one of them with their own destiny, their own dreams that God has for them. Do we ever give them any love, any prayer, any sow into their life? So what's the test? What's the problem? Because God wants to weave not just providence into whatever problem in your life. He wants to weave his presence into your life. The Holy Spirit that gives us the fruits of the Spirit. His presence, that, his grace that doesn't just cover our sin, but it enables us to walk out the calling, the, the purpose, the dream he has for us. So it, he wants to sow presence into whatever problem you're in, his presence. So we're going to go back into worship. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to worship tonight. But I simply want you to reflect where life has you, what you're up against, what that mountain is that God needs to cast aside. What, what, what are you praying for? Do you trust that God's still in control? Are you in a, a lesson of perspective, a, a lesson of protection? Is it a lesson of compassion? Is it none of those things, but you know God's working on your heart right now? Then as we stand, Let's stand. Let's go back into worship. We're going to sing that song, Come to the Altar. Somebody was excited. <laughs> That's a favorite. But we opened with Martin Luther King. And we're going to close with Martin Luther King because God gave Martin Luther King a dream. And his journey wasn't a straight line. You watch the movie Selma, you realize he was up against a whole lot. He had pits, potholes, speed bumps, spin outs. And you just think about what if history. What would have happened if he wrote down the dream God gave him, but he never acted on it? What would have happened if he wrote down the dream God gave him, but he stopped sharing it? And on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial that day, when somebody said, hey, don't share about your dream, for crying out loud, we've heard enough. If he didn't share his dream, where would we be now? In America, where would we be now? Where, who would Martin Luther King be to us? And you think about it, Martin Luther King lived his entire life was assassinated and didn't see the fruit of everything that he was striving for. Everything he had faith for, everything he was hoping for, he didn't see all of the progress. You know, Hebrews 11, you go to the New Testament, speaks of people who had faith but didn't see their hopes fulfilled. It says in verse 13, all these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. See, Joseph, once he learned to invest in the dreams of others, and he learned this lesson of compassion, he had dreams himself for others. He had a prophetic dream for the Israelites where it says in Hebrews eleven twenty two, 22, it was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, said confidently that the people of Israel would leave Egypt. 
He even commanded them to take his bones with them when they left. You know, it's interesting that it paralleled his life. Blessing in Egypt, followed by bondage in Egypt for no short amount of time. But Joseph was able to prophesy hope because he himself personally had walked through long seasons of trial, long seasons of testing, long seasons of lessons and problems, but ultimately growth. So Joseph was able to look at the Israelites who one day themselves would ultimately be exalted in the eyes of Egypt. It says as they went out of Egypt, the Egyptians were giving them just gifts as they were on their way out being led by Moses. The same way Joseph at the end of his story is exalted in the eyes of the Egyptians. See, persevering through these problems, Joseph didn't just physically save one nation. He prophetically spoke into the nation that, they, that would come out of his people. The small group of people that joined him in Egypt and the hope that they would never let go of. And you keep reading in Hebrews. Hebrews 12 verses 1 through 2 says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Again, every person in here, God has dreams, purposes, and plans for you. The dream is free. The journey isn't. The author of Hebrews talks about a race. Whether you want to call it a race, a marathon, a journey, there's something we're being called to. And the answer to make it through isn't to set your eyes on Joseph. It's to set your eyes on Jesus. He was the perfecter of faith. So God, tonight, no matter where you have us in our journey, no matter what we're up against, no matter what we need to look up and see your hand in, no matter where we need to recognize your providence, even in our problems, Lord God, your presence in the midst of whatever you're walking us through, Lord God, we step into worship tonight. Because no matter where we are, no matter what station of life we're in, we want to see your face. God, we want to know you more. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for these words we sing where we're able to come to an altar, lay down what burdens us, and pick up your dreams, your plans, and your purposes because of the blood of your son and what he did on the cross. So, God, as we sing these words, don't let them be empty words. Help them to shift our perspective and our focus past our problems, past what's around us, and set them on you again. But come on, let's worship God.